Can you hear me? So tonight's my big night. (laughs) It's almost like the Academy Awards or something. (laughs) Did you see how sweet they are? They're just precious, precious mentors. So tonight I would like... Oh, more volume? How's that? Is that better? Oh, okay. No, that's good. So before we get started, I would like to, or as we get started, I would like to introduce a new manager, Cynthia. Cynthia is, uh, has started today for the last week of the retreat, and she actually has worked here before. She worked here for a long time before as a retreat manager, is that right? And she has worked other places as a retreat manager. And she is taking um, Diane Small's place. Diane went left. We loved her, but we love Cynthia. And she'll be in the office now. Any messages? No, okay. So tonight I would like to talk about a pretty deep subject. It's kind of (laughs) deep. It's actually the seven factors of enlightenment. And um, I was researching this topic and You know, I've known about the seven factors of enlightenment since I've been meditating, I guess since 1982, and how they show up for me is, you know, these are one of the, um, I think it's 37 positive mental qualities that we are um, informed to develop for ourselves that will lead to awakening, to freedom. And... um, So they show up both in our everyday life as factors in our life and they show up, you know, pretty strongly actually in intensive meditation practice as we're doing it right here. And um, so I was reading about the seven factors and I was thinking, who was the Buddha? He is just such a brilliant person. I mean, he had, you know, anticipated complex systems theory and chaos theory and just how things merge together and he's just incredible. And one thing that I um, was reinforced with uh, in me was just that the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening are really go hand in hand with the four foundations of mindfulness. And uh, they really go together. So uh, they say that the Buddha had two systems of thinking about the seven factors. And one, if I have time at the very end, it's a very specific way that, um, you know, the fourth foundation of mindfulness leads straight to freedom and awakening. It's so beautiful. And then another way to think about the seven foundations is that um, where the, uh, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness are, first of all, tell us what we should pay attention to while we're meditating, right? You know, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, of mental states of the mind, and of dhammas. The seven factors of enlightenment tell us how how to pay attention to those things. It's so interesting. So um, what the seven factors are, you know, it starts, of course, with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the start of anything wonderful and good. And mindfulness is really the factor that, uh, that uh, watches the other six factors in order to make sure that they're balanced. So mindfulness is the uh, factor that's always present. And there's three factors that enliven the mind or uplift the mind. And those factors are investigation, energy, and joy. 
And then there are three factors that, that um, calm the mind down or, uh, you know, on the other side of energizing, they quiet the mind. And those are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. I know this is a lot of the lists. You know, the Buddha was so brilliant in how he laid out how to get enlightened. He had all these lists and categories. And um, so I'll probably put just a list of them. Maybe I have a sweet little table. Maybe I will stick it up on the board. So in, in keeping with, you know, what the Buddha's message was and all of this, I would like you to have this talk go into your intuitive awareness instead of your concept-making part of your brain. Because intuitive awareness, you know... uh, So I'll start with mindfulness. That's where I get my... um, You know, mindfulness, there's a lot of different definitions of it. And I have my own definition of mindfulness that I really like. It's actually based on... Um, something I learned, or the way that one of our teachers in Seattle, Rodney Smith, languages mindfulness. He says that we have two knowledge systems, and I totally know this to be true. We have two knowledge systems. We have our, you know, conceptual, conceptual linear knowledge system. You know, that's where our Western education system and other education sh- systems are based on. And then we have this other knowledge system that's based on intuitive awareness. And there really are two, you can think of them. You know, I, I don't want to give you a concrete because it's all just agreement that that's the way to language it. But, you know, there's two language systems. And uh, what we're doing here, you know, mindfulness, we are strengthening our uh, knowledge system of intuitive awareness. And uh, that's a knowledge system that isn't linear and isn't conceptual. It's based on something totally different. And mindfulness, mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. It just, mindfulness looks at experience. uh, And, you know, the Buddha in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness outlines a framework for looking at our experience. But he asks us, and uh, all of our teachers ask us, all of the Sangha, the, uh, you know, uh, all of the Buddhas, the awakened beings, and uh, all of the Sangha, teach us to, um, you know, look at that experience very directly without a lot of conceptual overlay. But the Buddha does use those wonderful four foundations as a way to direct the attention. But, um, you know, it's, it's a finger pointing at the moon. And we all know that wonderful, um, you know, uh, Zen, I think it was the sixth Zen patriarch story of a nun coming up to the uh, Zen patriarch and saying, I've been studying the Parinibbana Sutta. And, you know, I'm, some of it I really don't understand. Could you explain it to me? And he said, sure, you know, I'm illiterate, so why don't you read me the verses and maybe I can explain them to you. And she's just shocked. She's going, you're illiterate. How could you possibly know the Dhamma or explain the Dhamma to me if you're illiterate? And he says, well, you know, any words, any concepts that we have or like a finger, you know, uh, a wise approach, skillful means, pointing at the moon. The moon is the truth, and my finger are skillful means. But you must look beyond my finger in order to see the moon. And I was so uh, impressed. You know, some of you might actually have come to um, this retreat having done secular mindfulness. And uh, I was so impressed. You know, I, I read all of the articles. You know, there's a lot of articles now coming out in Western science about mindfulness. And there's actually a new journal out, you know, called Mindfulness. It's a, 
you know, a quasi-social science journal. I think it's a social science journal. I'm sure that they would be, you know, definitely consider themselves a social science journal. And I was so impressed that um, I... So this is the first... This is a quote by the editor of the um, journal Mindfulness. His name is uh, Nirba Singh. And this is page one of issue one of Mindfulness, the journal. And this is what uh, Nirba Singh says to open up this article. It's called Mindfulness, colon, a finger pointing at the moon. And this is about his, his journal or their journal. It is said that the sixth patriarch Hunan once instructed the nun, Jing Chang, that a finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. To see the moon, one must actually go beyond the finger and look at the moon. Therein lies the difference between thinking and experiencing. Mindfulness will publish articles on both thinking about and experiencing mindfulness. We intend for Mindfulness, the journal, to be the finger pointing to mindfulness, the experience. As is traditional in the social sciences, our authors will discuss models and concepts of mindfulness, develop and test competing hypotheses about the nature and effects of mindfulness, and slice and dice the concepts of mindfulness. At the same time, we hope mindfulness will prove instrumental in focusing the attention of our researchers and readers alike on the experience of mindfulness as a method of self-transcendence. We hope to avoid the situation in which we actually know more and more about the concept of mindfulness, but less and less about the personal experience of mindfulness. So I was really impressed with that. So mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of enlightenment or the factors of awakening. And the second factor, the first of the enlivening factors is called investigation or dhamma vichaya, dhamma vichaya. And of course, you know, as these Pali or Sanskrit works, words will have it, they have a variety of different meanings. And, you know, the meanings are not a little thing. They're pretty important to point us to exactly what we're trying to do here. And remember, you know, I'm talking about these factors as what the Buddha taught about the way to actually go about experiencing the what of the four foundations of mindfulness. So the, f- uh, the first enlivening factor is investigation. Some of its definitions are the analysis of qualities. What are the qualities of the, um, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness? Discrimination of dhammas, you know, understanding what one thing is when it's not one thing, maybe it's another thing. Discrimination of states. And actually there is some little investigation of doctrine or use of these wonderful concepts that the Buddha taught about a way to experience what, our, what, our, um, what we are seeing you know, during our meditation. Another, um, another definition is searching for the truth. And it's really about di- uh, discernment. It's really about discernment. And one thing that I really loved about uh, this investigation that was very meaningful to me is uh, one of the elements of uh, Dharma Vichaya investigation is something called Yoniso Manasakara, or wise reflection. What is wise reflection? And, you know, I've seen a few yogis and this is something that always comes up for me, actually in my everyday life and in intensive practice. And one of the questions of that is, what questions that arise in your mind should you pay attention to? And what, which questions should you not pay attention to? Have you noticed that the questions that you come up with 
in response to your experience, they're kind of interesting. And so the Buddha taught that the questions that lead you to look more directly or to, you know, there's this word in science called the phenomenology, the direct experience of what it is. Those questions that are, uh, that are pointing you in that direction are really good questions to, to uh, cultivate and to follow. Those are the ones that you want to pay attention to. And he teaches that one ignores questions that lead to the proliferation of mental effluence. Have you had any proliferation of mental effluence? (laughs) And to pay attention to questions that weaken them. You know, I was sitting at dinner with the teachers the other day and I was just going like this, talking about this need that we have to know what something is. And I was just screaming around going like, what is that thing when you just have to know what something is? The name of something. You want some certainty about something, but you want it from a conceptual viewpoint, right? Like, what is that? And uh, I think one of them said, well, you should just go up there and go like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing that right now. And, you know, that's the one that'll send us running down to buy a ton of books and to just try to figure out what our experience is. And it's not necessarily the best. You know, um, there's absolutely a time and place for those types of questions. And we, you know, those types of questions really run our world. But as we, you know, have this opportunity for... Um, you know, more direct seeing of our experience through mindfulness, those are the questions and those are the approaches to the experience that we really want to support and to, um, and to uh, feed. And we want to starve those questions that lead us to some search for a conceptual answer that will satisfy us. And we know that all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. So any conceptual answer to that, you know, answer that we could find is just actually feeding the desire for more of that. So I think we have to be careful of that. So with this wise investigation, it tells us the way to investigate our bodies. You know, the in and out breath, and um, we investigate the actual sensations of, you know, what we call pain that we might have in the body, rather than just, you know, putting a conceptual label of pain on it, and then thinking, you know, we know what that is, so we are, you know, we don't need to investigate it. Actually, probably a good approach to have to investigation is the don't know mind. It's like if we could suspend thinking that we know what something is, we might actually investigate to the point of seeing that it's actually something different than our conceptual mind has labeled it. Uh, There's an example of looking at the hindrances. You know, there's a way to look at the hindrances, to look at the object of the hindrance, for example, to look at um, maybe wanting in the mind. You know, so your thought is on wanting even a cup of tea. You know, your thought is on the object. Oh, the cup of tea, it would be so nice. I know down there they had that special organic black... Uh, vegan, uh, non, you know, non-caffeinated <laughs> tea. That's my favorite kind. <laughs> and I know they have stevia down there. That's really good. And the, uh, they have that hot pot where the water is always right hot. So there's a way to focus on the, you know, one way would be to focus on the object. 
But then, you know, um, the other way, and actually the way that uh, wise investigation uh, directs us to, is to actually, uh, rather than getting involved with the object, it's important to know the object, but to see what the nature of wanting is in our mind. You know, to not even get involved as much as we can, you know, uh, with the whole story of it, but to experience, wow, this is, you know, my uh, teacher Joseph, he just likes simple words. You know, that's greed in your mind. So it's like, this is greed in my mind. What does greed feel like? What is greed, you know, urging me to do? And, uh, and then it's interesting to even do it. Yeah, I'm going to go have a cup of tea. I'd like a cup of tea to go do it. And then watch what the expectation is of, you know, your hit of pleasure the expectation of like, this is going to make my day, this is going to be great. And then what happens when you're actually watching your mind as you take the first sip of tea, the second sip, and then, you know, by the third or fourth taste, you know, it tastes like dirt, right? (laughs) It doesn't always taste like dirt, but, you know, the point is that, you know, there's a, uh, that what we can do is use our mindfulness rather than, uh, think what we know what that experience is, is to bring the question of what is this experience right now? And how is it in my mind? Is this, you know, satisfying my expectation is that this is going to be pleasure and pleasure is going to be satisfying? So this is a little a little quote by Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. Simply by turning on the light, you can instantly destroy the darkness. Likewise, even a rather simple analysis of ego clinging and afflictive emotions can make them collapse. By suppression, we may temporarily subdue our afflictive emotions, but only an investigation of their true nature will completely eradicate them. I loved when Carol was talking about clinging and about, you know, we're trying to give up clinging and, you know, we try to give up this and to give up that. And she said something like, well, how did that work for you? How is that working for all of you guys trying to give up this and that with the will or with the ego? And, you know, she uh, pointed out beautifully that it's, it's wisdom that lets go. It's wisdom that lets go. And it's our mindfulness. I don't think Greg liked the word extract, but mindfulness extracts the wisdom out of the current situation. What else would you use besides extract? (laughs) (laughs) And then what happens, so this is another quote from Saida Utejaniya. He says, the balance you have to find is the balance between relaxation and interest. Interest is using wisdom. There is a wisdom quality to interest. Interest, which is investigation or discernment, right? People usually try to find a balance between effort and relaxation by using more or less effort. But if there is an interest, effort is already present. If there is interest, effort is already present. When the mind is interested in knowing something, there is already effort. But be patient with yourself. To have have zero tension is not easy. And I know um, all the teachers have been talking a lot about the importance of relaxation and and what we're doing here, of, you know, not striving. And, you know, this um, enlightenment factor speaks directly to that. What level of energy and um, diligence and effort do we bring to, uh, bring to an investigation of the four foundations of mindfulness? What amount of effort do we bring? Some of the um, key words associated with virya or energy as an enlightenment factor are Um, diligence, energy, perseverance, enthusiasm, 
sustained effort. It can be defined as an attitude of gladly engaging in wholesome activities, and it functions to cause one to accomplish wholesome or virtuous actions. And um, actually, you know, I'm a pretty enthusiastic person. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm kind of bubbly and out there. And um, during an intensive practice, and probably, I think I could safely say, in my daily life, I could get a little bit too energetic about things. And uh, I remember being on intensive practice, and I was, uh, the way, one way an overemphasis on energy was showing up for me. I was very enthusiastic, and I was, you know, doing one of the bells, you know, the bells to, to uh, before a sitting. And, you know, it was over at IMS, at Insight Meditation Society. And for those of you who know IMS, you know, you have to walk through different parts of the building and, you know, through, it's quite a big place where the yogis stay. And I knew that my energy was really over the top because I was just walking around, ringing the bell. And, you know, as I often would do, I would, you know, send metta to people I saw or just my surrounding environment. But in my mind, I was screaming, may you be happy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was just in my mind, but it was like this huge scream in my mind. And I was thinking, wow, that's kind of interesting. May you be happy. I was screaming it, may you be safe. <laughs> and, you know, I went to see my teacher, I think, a day later, and I said, this is happening. I think it might be too much energy. He goes, yeah, you better go take a walk. You know, you just cool it for a little while. You know, try to, um, you know, relax a little bit, take it easy. Take a more leisurely walk. But, you know, and I've heard from a few yogis that energy gets very, you know, when energy is too ramped up, it can get very jarring out there. Here is a um, quote about effort. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestations of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, this is failure. Who says? You says. That's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. And I know I tend to do that, to judge what's going on, you know. Am I doing this right? Is this right? Actually, there's one saying, it might be a Zen saying, that it's none of your business how your practice is going. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's none of your business how it's going. You just have to do the practice with as much skill as you can. And, you know, according to Greg, which I thought was beautiful, we don't even have to do it that well. <laughs> You know, we try our best, we do it as best as we can, following the guidelines, following what to look at and how to look at it, and then we just let the rest go. And, you know, it's not even us doing it. I mean, that's what I love about these, about, you know, all of the fourth foundation. These are energies that have their own life. They arise and they pass away. They have their own energy. And... uh you know, when our discernment, you know, our, sef our second factor is sharp, we can see that. That it's not us making it happen. Other causes and conditions are coming together for any of the hindrances or any of the seven factors to arise and stay and then pass away or do what they do. So what are some of the conditions that actually foster wise effort? Uh, they say that um, just reflecting on the Buddha, you know, knowing that the Buddha thought that the energetic were, you know, he really praised the energetic people. Reflecting on just how smart that guy was, oh my gosh. He was really one smart person. Uh, reviewing the uh, benefits of the lineage that we're in, you know, the great heritage of actually being offered these teachings. 
associating with um, energetic people and not idle people. Well, you guys are already doing that. You are all uh, have already created the conditions of coming here for a wise effort to arise, for you know the uh, enlightenment fac- factor of mindfulness and investigation and effort to arise. Uh, some of them have all of the same causal conditions, such as being around um, energetic people or investigating people or mindful people and not being around uh, people who are engaging in unwholesome mind states. And, you know, you've already created just the perfect condition for that. You know, those forces are already at work in uh, strengthening these mental factors in all of us. So we've created those great conditions. And then resoluteness is a condition for all of the mental factors to arise. And I've used this before, and I know the teachers are actually um, giving you resolutions, right? Resoluteness would be working with resolutions, like may joy arise, may effort get stronger, may mindfulness arise, or may mindfulness get stronger things like that, working with resolves. So, just to repeat, mindfulness is at the beginning, investigation is the natural, uh, is the way that we investigate with mindfulness, and it's also the natural, um, it's a natural um, outcome of actually being mindful, investigation is. When you're investigating, energy shows up. Energy is the natural outcome of investigating. And when you have mindfulness, investigation, and energy, joy arises. Joy arises in your mind. And it arises in different ways. You know, some joy can be, um, you know, the name for the... the, um, factor of enlightenment for joy is called PT. And I know that some of you have experienced PT. It's just that, you know, it can be as little as just goosebumps that you have in your body. A, a goosebump of joy or just thinking, wow, this is so cool. You know, this practice is so cool. And, or it can just be, you know, knocking you around in your seat an experience of just really energetic bliss in your body. And I've had, you know, both of those experiences. I remember once um, I had this PT and I have, you know, I know that it arose because of causes and conditions. I couldn't tell you what they were at that one moment. But I had this incredibly strong PT. It was so strong and I just sat down to feel it. it. It actually started when I was just walking around and... You know, I just sat down and felt it because it was the strongest pleasure, body pleasure I had ever had in my entire life. And I thought to myself, how would I even describe this to anybody? And I thought, okay, I would describe it by saying, and I was having this thought while I was having this PT. I was thinking, this is like realizing the moment you realize that you had the only winning ticket for a $50 million lottery plus having the person that you have been in love with for 10 years come up and tell you that they were madly in love with you. You know, just the pleasure and excitement. And I was thinking that would probably describe what I'm feeling right now. (laughs) So that was, you know, very strong PT, but it can actually, there's, you know, definitely a spectrum of what PT feels like. It can be goosebumps or just you know, the joy of, of uh, you know, investigating and seeing things and knowing what something is in your mind. No, seeing the process, it makes you really happy. It can be, um, you know, feelings of explosions or waves around the body. Um, I remember Andrea Fellow once saying that she actually had really strong PT, but without the pleasure, it just felt kind of like a lot of energy. And I know people here have felt like an overabundance of energy that could have been, you know, 
virya or could have been piti as well, I guess. And there are certain things that you can do to incline the mind to actually um, up your joy, up your uh, piti. And those are things like uh, just reflect on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but, you know, sometimes just, you know, um, some, one of my teachers told me that, you know, as I grow into teaching, that I will take the seat of the devotional type because I just love the Buddha. I just have... And sometimes when I look at uh, Buddha imagery, I just get filled with this incredible faith and love and just even reflecting on who he was, you know, this man of color in northern India, just figuring out, you know, what modern uh, neuroscience is just beginning to understand is amazing to me. And it brings me a lot of joy and happiness in my mind. So reflecting on the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha. And then actually reflecting on your own goodness is really also a way to increase the joy in your mind. So just think, I mean, what it took for you all to get here. I mean, the things that you had to put in order and the joys that you put away. You know, you missed the Super Bowl. You're missing the Oscars. I mean, all of the things that, that might have brought you some material success. You said, hey, I'm putting that aside. That's a very wholesome thing to do in order to, to do this practice. And then reviewing encouraging discourses, listening to Dharma talks. And then again, resolves about increasing joy. May joy arise in me. So, you know, it's a natural progression. Again, it is mindfulness brings investigation, that brings energy, that brings joy. And then the joy actually brings tranquility to our minds. Calm and tranquility. It's called Pasadi. Calm or tranquility. It's the fifth enlightenment factor. And it's a natural occurrence you know, once we have, in the, in the development, in the, uh, in the practice of Satipatthana. And how do they define tranquility? Tranquility is calmness, repose, serenity, to calm down the mind. So how do you, what are the nutriments for tranquility? How do you uh, engage tranquility in the practice or work with tranquility? The, the Fasudi Maga recommends that... Now, this is a really good one. This is one that really got me. I was really fascinated by this one. It's actually sense restraint. And it's, uh, you know, with our joy, we could actually, you know, our joy could really get... Uh, enraptured or it could make us think that our joy was coming from other sources. For example, you know, uh, on intensive practice, you know, sometimes uh, boredom would arise and distraction would arise and greed and, you know, or lust would arise and I would, you know, engage in a vipassana romance. You know, someone I had absolutely, I didn't, had no idea who this person was, but you know, I had a story about, uh, you know, a guy on the retreat, and I would, you know, I realized that it was total fantasy. In fact, you know, that's one of my uh, biggest hindrances. It is so, um, it's, you know, fantasy, romantic fantasy was such a big hindrance, or one of my favorite hindrances, that I had a, a shortcut for it. It was RF, romantic fantasy, romantic fantasy. 
And, you know, it's, it would arise with the story and now we'd just, you know, be able to put that frame of mindfulness around it and say, oh, romantic fantasy, romantic fantasy. But then there's also, um, and, you know, there's uh, verses in the suttas about, uh, about yogis, people practicing uh, satipatthana who have sense restraint both for pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant... Um, sense, you know, uh, sense, bodily senses. But what really surprised me and got me was when I was reading that, we're, we're supposed to have sense restraint for pleasant and enticing ideas. Wow. Who's had those? A lot of us, you know, who get, who get attracted to this practice, this Satipatthana practice, we're like big eggheads, aren't we? It's like, wow, this is so great. How does this work? And, you know, the Buddha had all these great lists and these, you know, all of these wonderful uh, schemas of how everything worked. And, you know, we can get, uh, get away from just the direct experience of that and get attracted by the ideas of what the concepts of these things are. And I know I am totally guilty of that. You know, I get really love to, you know, there's some, something fascinating. It's entertainment, I think my entertainment, to put a conceptual overlay over this. And, you know, I'm a college professor. I have to have concepts to talk about this stuff. So it's just part of, you know, what I do. So, you know, that was one thing that was really interesting for me, of that ideas are, can be part of what we need to have restraint about. Is this an idea that's going to lead to more direct experience? Or is this an idea that's going to lead me away to more conceptual, speculative thought? And I think that's an interesting thing to think about sense restraint in. I'm running out of time and I've only gone through five. Excuse me. So once we have calm and tranquility, that will lead to concentration. And um, concentration, samadhi, is, uh, or actually agakarta, one-pointedness, is the way that um, the... uh, the concentration enlightenment factor is described within this system. Uh, Egekarta, it's that one-pointedness, and I know that you have all felt it. It's really a sweet collection of the mind. It's an experience of just having your energy collected and just being able to stay on one point. So out of um, tranquility, concentration will naturally arise in the mind, this one-pointedness. And it functions to just increase our ability to see. You know, with concentration, we're seeing the, uh, the um, satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness, just more clearly. And with concentration, you know, I think we all have that experience of Um, you know, when we have good concentration in our minds and when we have strong mindfulness, nothing seems to be personal, right? Or like many things don't seem personal. It's like we can see these objects or even these stories come into our mind and we can see them rise, you know, and we are holding them in our mindfulness. And in this case, you know, the mindfulness is holding it in the middle it's not repressing anything, but it's not obsessing. It's not denying, but it's not jumping on the train either. It's just seeing clearly in the middle of those two things what's happening in the moment. And with concentration, uh, my experience is that it's just has a really clear frame around what that mental object is in the mind. You know, we can see it clearly not as, you know, us. We don't take it to be us. We really take it to be a mental object in the mind, something that arises because of a cause and condition. 
And, you know, we can see what happens to it, you know. When we can recognize what it is through discernment, you know, through investigation, it often will self-liberate and just, that'll be the end of it. So that's how concentration is useful to me. And, um, you know, how it's telling us how to look at the things that we are seeing in the Four Foundations. So how does one incline the mind or how does one feed concentration as we're practicing Satipatthana? We, um, you know, a lot of the seven mental factors actually say being clean and having kind of like a tidy uh, meditation cushion is useful for that. So you might want to tidy up around there. And then restraining the mind and exerting the mind. Uh, actually reflecting on faith. You know, if, you know, there's a sense of awe. You know, I've seen the sense of awe. In fact, I'm going to start crying just thinking about it. I've seen some of the awe in the uh, yogis that have come in for interviews when I've sat in on interviews. This just sense of awe, like, wow, this is so incredible. And um, just reflecting on that. To, to me, that's a manifestation of faith. Like, wow, this practice is incredible. How does it do this? And, you know, reflecting on faith and just, you know, how much this means to you is a way to increase concentration. And then just making resolves for concentration. And then finally, the last uh, of the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment is equanimity. And um, equanimity is, as we all know, is also, you know, it appears on a lot of the Buddhist lists. It's also one of the um, Brahma-viharas or the divine abodes. And equanimity is the ability to, it's kind of the resilience in awareness that just, it doesn't matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant or, you know, what it is crossing awareness, you know, whatever mindfulness is looking at, equanimity just says, yeah, I can take it. I have the strength to see whatever that is and have it not be sticky, have me, have us not have a sense of stickiness or identification with that, ability to open to whatever there is with strength and resilience. It's interesting too because um, the seven factors also have a big place in the development of very high levels of, very high levels of, um, concentration practice, of concentration that also are thought to be one of the, the requisites for freedom or a glimpse of liberation. So, um, <clears throat> you know, energy goes to, um, actually I have it written down here somewhere. So mindfulness is the first factor that leads to discernment, that leads to persistence or energy or effort. And then it starts leading into the jhanic factors, the factors of very deep concentration. And, you know, the jhanic factors are, um, you know, persistence or applied, you know, um, of... Um, sustained thought and applied thought. And then uh, joy is one of the uh, jhanic factors leading to serenity or rapture, you know, kind of PT is one of the jhanic factors leading to serenity, to a more, to sukha, to a more gentle type of happiness and joy uh, leading to um, equanimity. And they're all in the line of jhanic factors. And then when, you know, it's said that when we can um, actually have that level of concentration, looking at the f four satipatthanas, that's when, you know, the mind gets released and, and freedom comes.
So that's about all I have on the seven factors. And again, you know, just to um, remind us that it's excellent advice about, you know, the four Satipatthanas, the content or what we should look at. And these factors are how we should be looking at it with equanimity, with, you know, just, it doesn't matter, you know, open to whatever, uh, you know, wants to present itself with the acceptance and the openness of just whatever wants to present itself and with the concentration, you know, clarity of being able to see, having strong mindfulness. And just, um, you know, I think it's so interesting to even be able to hold really difficult memories or really difficult emotional pain or whatever. And I'm sure you've all felt it um, in this field of joy. Isn't it interesting? Just to be able to do that, to, to know the resilience of the mind and heart to be able to do that. So, let's just sit for a minute. May all of our seven factors of awakening arise. May we feed them on retreat and may they be fed in our lives often on retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.